This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 175. When we look at um, things like um, fake news, proving um, your identity with remote methods is going to be more and more uh, critical. In an age of deep fakes and software supply chain hacks, securing online identity these days is about a lot more than lock icons on your browser window. In part two of our podcast this week, we're joined by Dan Timpson, the Chief Technology Officer at DigiCert, to talk about the fast-expanding terrain of securing online identities. But first, it wasn't so long ago that the biggest scandal to crop up during an election season was a love child or maybe a long-buried DUI report for a leading candidate. In 2020, the biggest story may be a wonky and insecure mobile application like the one used by the Iowa Democratic Party or a cyber attack on a campaign's cloud-based email accounts. Political campaigns are bespoke creations that, at their height, may span all 50 states and involve hundreds of thousands of volunteer and temporary employees. More than ever, these campaigns operate online and leverage cloud-based applications and services. In our first segment this week, we're joined by Andrew Peterson, the CEO and co-founder of Signal Sciences, which protects some of the world's leading firms against web-based attacks. In this conversation, Andrew and I talk about how the biggest risks that face campaigns this election season may not be sophisticated attacks so much as a lack of basic security hygiene and know-how. Yeah, I'm, I'm Andrew Peterson. I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Signal Sciences. Signal Sciences is a web application firewall or a next-gen and web application firewall um, company. Um, and we protect sort of the world's, web, like the world's leading websites against um, attacks of a bunch of different nature, but things, things that are popping up more and more around things like account takeover and credential stuffing and sort of bot attacks that are happening on a more regular basis. One type of organization that is definitely embracing cloud technologies is, of course, political campaigns. And this is an election year, Andrew. And election security, broadly defined, is really on people's minds. As you look at the problem of election security, where, where do you think the biggest vulnerabilities or risks are for both campaigns and, I guess, the political system more broadly? It's been a big topic, honestly, since 2016. And it's it's interesting because I think... While we were massively unaware of and very, very, um, very much unprepared for the types of attacks that happened in 2016, I think, you know, we've done a pretty great job as an industry of at least uncovering some of the some of the attack patterns that were happening there and hopefully sort of trying to raise awareness to be able to prepare ourselves for the future. One of the things that, that the security industry tends to kind of focus on a lot is the sort of really advanced style attacks that happen uh, against you know various infrastructures yeah. and all sorts of different organizations and i think that tends to be kind of a lot of the conversation around preparedness for this this sort of upcoming election the um, sexy stuff yep yeah exactly this the sexy stuff but you know most practitioners when you end up talking to CISOs, they're kind of like we still need to get the basics right and this is from people that actually have pretty mature 
programs, um, you know, in place that they've been developing for years within pretty well-funded, you know, large organizations, including, you know, financial institutions and stuff. And they still have problems with the basics. And so I think that's actually where you could, we we can expect, and and I hope to see the biggest impact for election and, and campaign security is that, Look, these groups, they don't even have a security person at all in their organizations, right? Like, or maybe they do now and somebody sort of tapped with that. But you compare that against, you know, very mature, large organizations that have been building these security programs for 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 years now. And it, it's just hard to expect that we're going to see that much maturity within those organizations to be able to stop really, really sophisticated types of attacks. But again, like... The rest of the industry is still still struggling with some of the basics, and so that's where I think we're 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 hoping, or I'm hoping, to see the most impact uh, in terms of uh, being able to actually increase the security of these campaigns. And I'm talking about things like, you know, let's have folks on on the campaign use password managers to to actually make sure that they have uh, you know password. What? That's crazy talk, Andrew. I know, right? Like, <laughs> like I mean, it's crazy. Password manager. I mean, these are the things that I, you know, it's it's kind of like the things that I go to my family and say, look, I know these things are a little hard to set up, but like as my family, these are the basic things that I would say is use a password manager, use two-factor authentication, and then make sure that you're you have some awareness of you know what what's going on on the different services that you're using. And here are some examples of what phishing campaigns can look like. Like these are the basic things that you don't need a massively, you know, complicated security professional to come in and set up within these campaigns to actually have some pretty big impact. And, you know, again, let's let's if we actually look to some of the the, the explicit examples of how attackers were able to actually impact uh, campaigns in the past, it was it was a yep through phishing campaigns of being able to get access and control over accounts. But then B, it, I mean, it was through social media of being able to actually sort of abuse existing functionality to influence voter behavior and, and, and influence um, uh, voter sentiment. And those are two areas that are not, you know, this is yeah. getting some, you know, access to uh, the election um, machines themselves and changing votes. This is actually just using sort of good old fashioned sort of hard work and, and persistence on the attacker's perspective to be able to, to, to be able to get access to things that are sort of age old, easy ways to get access to. Hillary Clinton's email server, obviously, was a, was a big topic of conversation in the 2016 election cycle. She apparently, uh, as Secretary of State, uh, also had a, an email server. She was running privately an exchange server that may or may not have been targeted and attacked. But th- these days, I'd imagine, uh, you know, in 2020, uh, most campaigns, to the extent that they're using email, which is a lot, are probably using uh, either Office 365 or Google, Gmail, and G Suite, uh, some kind of hosted offering rather than actually having a physical uh, server somewhere, anywhere in their in their organization. Okay. I have a feeling that that might give them sort of magical thinking about the, you know, well, we've got Microsoft has our back on security or Google has our back on security. And my sense is um, that is exactly what I just called it, magical thinking, that uh, just using Office 365 or G Suite does not give you access to Google security team. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's, there's a couple different parts in that. This is, it's again, not just campaigns. This is, it's the same story of, of most, you know, most organizations now. Like people are moving away from managing, you know, their own email servers and trying to get, get, get away from that to actually start using these sort of cloud providers. And this is, this is where then, you know, what we've seen as a trend of attacks over the last year, both through our own, you know, both through signal sciences and kind of the data that we've seen with a bunch of the customers that we work with. But, just trends that you're hearing in the industry, 
the rise of doing sort of account takeover and using automated tools to really try to brute force people's passwords just to be able to get access to their accounts to take those things over. This is not just a problem with sort of consumer-based websites. Um, this is a problem now with internal internal tools and stuff that organizations are using that they've you know historically been like, hey, these are internal tools, so it's you know, and it might have been running again on a on a server behind a firewall that's inside the network. Um, this is just one of those broader trends. You're moving to have these things be, you know, outside of the network. They're accessible by anybody in the world from a web perspective. Makes it much easier for your employees and for these campaigns to access these tools and use these tools on mobile devices and sort of from anywhere when they're when they're out on the election campaign themselves. But it also makes it easier for attackers to attack them. And so. You know, some of the basic things, again, that the campaign, the people on these campaigns can actually do is, yep, like make it harder to brute force those passwords, right? So so make sure that you're using things like password managers to be able to, to have access to that. Again, using two-factor auth is obviously important things for that. But the other thing that they should be asking is making sure that these providers that they're using actually have secure systems set up that are you know looking for and blocking against things like account takeover um and, and that's right. i mean like that's where we really help with these organizations where it's like you as the SaaS provider are using our service to be able to identify those attacks and actually block them proactively and then be able to give that information essentially back to those campaigns, hopefully, um, to say, hey, by the way, like you guys are under attack right now of people trying to access information within your systems. And I think that's that's the piece of the puzzle right now that I think is is kind of missing is that, number one, a lot of organizations, like let's say it's the SaaS service that's actually running systems for these campaigns. They, number one, don't necessarily have a ton of visibility into what attackers are doing against their websites mm -hmm. in the first place, right? And this is mm -hmm. obviously something we're really passionate about because we help people with that. But then I think the next level needs to be, especially in sort of scenarios where, um, you know, these are services that are linked to critical systems or critical processes like elections, for example, that those providers, like, you know, I guess it's a bit of a question, like, is it their responsibility then to be able to get that information back to those campaigns to say, hey, you know, we actually have been seeing a rise in attacks against people trying to get into your specific, you know, your specific domain or your specific instance of this, let's use, you know, email as the system against your email. Um, so you guys, you know, FYI for you, you should be extra diligent right now because you're seemingly under attack, even if you don't know about it right now. I think the firm uh, Agari just had a survey uh, of the leading democratic campaigns. These are presidential campaigns. And uh, they found that just one of the 13 candidates in the democratic field polling above 1%. So these are the top 13 candidates had implemented uh what they called necessary precautions against attacks. So detection of de deceptive email attacks on the campaign and campaign staff, uh, email authentication, you know, DMARC, use of DMARC and those types of uh, uh, protocols and technologies to prevent spoofing and so on. That many of these campaigns, including the uh, incumbents campaign, are not using these types of defenses. What, why is that? The funny thing is that you, you kind of see two different uh, narratives on this stuff. Like that, that, when, when the press and or when, when um, politicians or, or policymakers are talking about this stuff, they, they tend to be really surprised that, you know, some of these basic things aren't in place. If you talk to security professionals, they're like, look, like, 
I've been working in this industry for 15 years, maybe at the same company, and we still struggle with getting some of those things in place. And we actually have a pretty well-funded organization to be able to do that. So it, I, I think at the end of the day, like- Security's hard. Well, security's hard, number one. But I do think that the public who are not security professionals assume that the most critical systems and the most critical functions that we have within our, our, our national systems, right? Like, and, and campaigns being one of them, they have the the best people from the government involved in being able to protect these things. And that's just not the reality of what's happening. And so, no. I, yeah. I mean, like, A, that's it's a bit scary. But B, the, the message that I would send to the sort of general public is, look, 2016 really raised awareness on this stuff. And so the fact that people are even talking about these things or even, you know, Agari is doing these types of assessments, assessments yeah. reports, like that is progress, right? Because it's raising yeah. awareness on, on the problem in the first place. Are we super prepared for this election? No. And I would have never sort of expected <laughs> us to be prepared for this one because of yeah. you, you, you can't create a mature security program overnight. Like you just can't. Yeah. And you could throw all the resources at it in the world, but like even that won't matter. I mean, again, you look at massive financial organizations, they have tens of thousands sometimes. Yeah, but wouldn't you think these campaigns would start from a from a foundation of like you know standing up the presidential campaign of you know Senator Klobuchar or you know Senator Sanders? Wouldn't you think step one, given what happened in 2016, would be you know stop the presses, let's back up and assess our you know campaign security from the ground up because we don't want to have what happened to the Clinton campaign happen to us? I I think it's a totally fair thing to expect. Um, the, the thing that I try to tell a lot of sort of non-security professionals is, look, it's, it's very hard to be proficient and good at security if you're not good at technology to begin with. And these organizations tend yeah. to not be very technical, yeah. right? And so, yeah, 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 yeah. so if we're just saying like, oh, they're going to go from zero to, to, to proficient yeah. from a security perspective, it's like, well, you kind of need to start with just having a, a, an investment and some type of strategy on the technology side, which I think a lot of these organizations don't even have there in the first place. So yeah, I think it, it's really just kind of a, these organizations are getting more mature with both their technology and their security practices. It's just a slow movement because... Politics in the past has never been about technology and about security. It, it, it's never been a high priority for these folks. And I bet if you were to ask them, they would still say, this is not going to be a competitive advantage for us in the election, right? Like in, in the actual yeah. campaign, like all these other things are important to us to actually try to win this thing. Um, and security is still going to be kind of a second a second fiddle to those things. Well, and you talk about, you know, kind of access to talent. I mean, not only are not most campaign workers not highly paid security professionals, most of them are not paid at all. You know, I mean, the vast majority are, are volunteers. The number of paid staff is vanishingly small. Absolutely. But but one of the things that I've been hoping for that's in the same vein that, um, that actually just came out in Ohio about a month ago is that they announced that they're building this cyber reserve, um, which is essentially like a you know, sort of national guard of, of security professionals that are civilian cybersecurity reserve sort of forces designed uh-huh. to be deployed uh-huh. at critical times to help the state and local governments um, against sort of critical infrastructure um, uh, attacks uh, on these systems. And, huh. you know, I, I, I've been really excited to see that happen there. I, I'm, I'm really eager to see if that starts to happen across more of these organizations um, because, you know, so many of the security professionals that I've talked to about a lot of these things over the last, you know, a couple of years, really since 2016, 
a lot of people are saying like, look, I'd love to get involved in being able to help with these things. And I, you know, everybody knows that everybody in cybersecurity is under-resourced from a, from a personnel perspective. And, you know, campaigns are going to be the most under-resourced and they don't have money to be able to pay folks. But there's a lot of people that are like socially passionate about being able to protect these things and developing some type of organized, you know, volunteer coalition with it that w- within the state level or the local level to be able to sort of, um, I don't know, mobilize this energy, I think, that the security industry has to be able to protect these systems, I think is a really interesting um, trend that that I think will be um, hopefully implemented well in Ohio, at least in, in the coming year, and that it, it could be sort of an example to other states and local governments. When, when we talk about the attacks against, um, you know, these campaigns, but also more broadly, um, these uh, cloud-based systems, how do these typically work? Is it, uh, you know, we hear a lot about password spraying and credential stuffing. Is that um, 80% of the problem or, you know, where, where do you at Signal Sciences, um, what types of uh, problems do you see companies and, and organizations having? Yeah, I, I think, you know, things like account takeover and credential stuffing are certainly things that, um, A, they're becoming sort of new trends, right? So a lot of people like talking about, that, about them, but B, they're, they're a little like in terms of the types of attacks that happen on you know, SaaS systems or on software systems, like those tend to be some of the easier ones to be able to understand really just from a technical perspective of like, oh, got it. Yes. Like people are using lists to try to brute force password uh, you know, and doing password enumeration against um, you know, maybe using lists of dumps of previous attacks that people have been able to get access to. Like that's pretty easy to wrap your head around. And that's, you know, a... You can be a humanities major and understand that one. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, and, and, no, and, and this is actually a real thing, right? Because when you're talking about how do budgets get allocated within organizations um, to protecting against different types of security threats, like you're, you're typically having those budgets get allocated by people that aren't security professionals and, you know, a phishing campaign or sort of a virus uh, and malware, that's something that a lot of humanities majors can actually still understand and have some, some experience with. Um, but it doesn't really change the attack patterns that we've seen. We've, the, the, the majority of the attacks that we see, um, there certainly are rise in ones that are like account takeover and brute force, uh, brute force account takeover. And I think the reason why we've seen a rise in those is because it's easy, like it's easy and effective. But the other stuff that we that we protect against are things like SQL injection and cross-site scripting and command execution. These are these are age-old sort of vulnerabilities that have been around in software for a long time. And I think a lot of people are sort of bored of talking about them a bit in the industry. But guess what? They continue to be quite effective also because we have a very hard time making um, bugless software. I know it's shocking to hear that. Um, but, but like, you know, you talk to a developer and like, I, I'm sort of being, being off the cuff here a bit, but like, or tongue in cheek, but you talk to developers, you talk to, to people that are writing this code and they're like, yeah, of course I write code that has bugs. Like nobody, nobody makes perfect code. Um, but the way in which we've really approached trying to sort of protect software and websites has been, okay, well, let's find all the bugs in, in you know, and all the software vulnerabilities before it goes out into a production system and we'll fix them, we'll fix them there. Um, and that really, it really still, still relies on this waterfall model of, um, of software development that we're just, we're moving away from. Like the industry is moving away from this, like, okay, cool, I finished the software as the developer and now I'm going to hand it over to the security team and they're going to make my software like invulnerable, like, 
that's not how software is developed anymore. It's really, you know, speeding up and it's, you're seeing these sort of agile and development process because guess what? Like that's what the business needs. So the business needs are really outstripping these sort of previous processes. And this is really where like what I've seen in the conversation I've had with CISOs over the last, you know, three to six months have really started to, to evolve where so much of their sort of approach to defending um, the software that they have in their organization is kind of moving beyond this. Hey, let, let's focus on finding all the bugs and solving it all before it gets into production, you know, using things like, you know, code analysis tools like static and dynamic analysis and things like bug bounties and, and pen tests. Like that's just a point in time. I think they're really realizing that like, hey, almost all of my production systems obviously have bugs and active security vulnerabilities. So I now need to really understand what attackers are doing against those systems in production um, to be able to understand like, how do I prioritize, right? Like this gets back to your point before, which is like, hey, we're overwhelmed with tons of different types of risks within these organizations. If you don't have visibility into what attackers are attempting to do on various systems, and this includes people's, you know, their websites and their mobile applications, like how do they even know what to prioritize in the first place? And so I think that concept of visibility that's become so um, you know, popular in development worlds with the rise of monitoring tools like Splunk and Datadog um, and, and log management tools like that, you're seeing that really start to like at least that philosophy start to, to come over into the security world as well, where people are like, hey, you know, we, we need to have that same level of visibility, but have it against, you know, what type of behavior is happening on these systems from an attack perspective so that we can prioritize our defensive efforts. Sort of bringing it back to election security uh, as kind of a parting shot here is, look, the, the, the most effective means of being able to actually impact and, and influence the U.S. elections in 2016 was actually doing and using social media to sort of abusively use that in a way to to influence voter behavior and you know voters consumers we don't have access to the systems that these social media platforms have to be able to see these trends um, around what types of attacks are happening but this is where getting some transparency from those organizations um, i think would be helpful because you know, if attackers had so much success being able to do that in 2016, why are we so focused on like, oh, well, they're going to go after the actual sort of, again, these sort of yeah, the, voting systems. The voting machines. Yeah, right, right. Why would they do that when they just had all this success being able to do a previous thing that, you know, to yeah. my knowledge, I don't know that we have come up with a solution to that type of attack that they did before. So, you know, at the very least, what I'd like to see are some types of reports or some types of trends where these social media companies are being able to be transparent about saying, look, we're doing our best to, to, to stop, you know, to stop attacks as, as they've been happening, you know, in, in 2016. And I think, you know, I'd like to believe that they are making progress against being able to identify bad behavior on the site in the first place. Um, but I think that they need to go a little bit further than this and they need to start showing and, and giving trends of, you know, this is, these are where attackers are actually focused. They're focused on these specific pre precincts or these specific lo locations where they're, they're focusing a lot of their attacks. Because again, that goes back to those campaigns that they at least can allow themselves and get that information to say, okay, guess what guys, like our areas are hyper under, under the influence of, you know, attacks from these, these foreign, foreign nations to try to impact, you know, voter behavior in these areas. And this puts us in a position to be even more diligent to be able to either 
try to provide sort of counter intelligence to the to the voters in our areas about the fact that this stuff is going on, or at least puts them especially on edge about other types of attacks that may be happening on their campaign or their infrastructure in the first place. But that's data, again, that we don't have access to as consumers that these these social media companies do. And I'd really like to see some more transparency that, that, that's coming out of those organizations to help prepare all the rest of us. Well, Andrew Peterson of Signal Sciences, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Andrew Peterson is the CEO and co-founder of the firm Signal Sciences. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This week's podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. Up next, in an age of connected homes, cloud computing, and deep fakes, securing online identities is a lot more complicated than putting a lock icon next to a web page URL. That's why the firms that manage digital identities online are moving quickly to evolve their platforms and diversify their offerings to serve an ever-growing number of use cases and a rapidly expanding population of internet-connected devices. In our second segment this week, we sat down with Dan Timpson, the Chief Technology Officer at DigiCert, to talk about the rapidly expanding landscape for secure online identities, including needs created by the shift to cloud, agile development. We also talk about the evolution of the online threat landscape and how new threats are putting a premium on the need to secure and verify online identities. Dan Timpson, Chief Technology Officer at DigiCert. One of the things that we've seen um, come up over and over again in terms of customer requests uh, and usability is flexibility and deployments. So as much as we'd like to think that on-prem software is going away, there's a lot of special use cases, uh, particularly within PKI, where that's just not reasonable. And so we've built our new technologies to have some deployment agility that can be on-premise, they can be in your private cloud, or we can use uh, Amazon Azure or public cloud. And so we've got um, lots of options as far as how we deploy them. And one of the things that uh, you know got drilled in my head at Microsoft is we want to be into the management workflow that enterprises um, are using today. I mean, if we try and invent something that's you know not embracing a standard or something like that, it's just a recipe for failure. So that's the other key thing, and we're, we're seeing um, that containerization, you know, broadly speaking, is is the way uh, you know to deploy these days. Mm-hmm. Do you see going forward, you know, obviously the, the trend towards, um, you know, uh, containerization and, and uh, you know, migration of applications and compute power, power to the cloud, that's well underway. You know, if you kind of project out the, the trend lines, um, it seems to be where, where people are going, where organizations are going. Mm-hmm. In the net, is that a good thing um, for a PKI provider or is it a good thing for, you know, um, streamlining PKI deployments and kind of getting more people to use PKI in more context? I think it is. When you have something that shortens the length of time, when I can get a feature for you into production faster and you're able to realize that value to your business, it's a good thing. So, um, you know, we're, we're embracing it wholeheartedly. There's so many ways that we can incorporate uh, a more secure posture for these devices and and the malware could be kept at bay with uh, you know things like code signing. Um, it's not going to execute on a machine where those checks are in place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's absolutely driving some of the concern and then just prompting people into action to to do this kind of stuff better. So we're continuing to hear about, you know, large-scale data breaches. I mean, just in the last week and a half, mm-hmm. 
series of, of announcements from different companies. Um, many of these, when you dig into them, seem to have some connection to cloud-based resources or data repositories, whether it's a uh, you know storage container that was uh, inadvertently exposed or, or something along those lines. How is DigiCert kind of tailoring its technology and offerings to address this challenge of you know, usually hybrid cloud and, and on-premises IT assets that need to be secure. It's a multifaceted approach. So we can look at containers individually and the code that run in those containers. So we mentioned code signing a minute ago. Mm-hmm. This is one of the tools in the toolbox, um, but also the, you know, just good, um, you know, IT or build security, understanding what software you have and inventorying that properly uh, so that uh, if things need to be patched, um, they can be done quickly. And that's where the containers are kind of nice. Now that's not you know, digital technology per se, but the um, attestation of a signed uh, binary or, you know, the build systems that house these things, what's the supply chain and how can that be protected too? So the developers and the DevOps mentality, all of these things that go into the dev process can also be protected uh, with strong authentication and then, you know, communications within the organization and so forth. Those are workflows that DigiCert is prepared to, you know, help enterprises with and, and do, you know, better security around. And is that all within your existing kind of tooling set or are there new systems or solutions specifically to address those, those use cases? Yeah, so DigiCert, um, DigiCert's platform, generally speaking, we've got um, a really good handle on website security, obviously. These new products we've announced, and I would say, you know, Enterprise Auth is pretty mature as well. But you're going to see from us where we've had uh, separate systems for these things, bringing them under the fold of DigiCert 1. So our code signing solutions and document signing solutions are on a roadmap, for instance. Mm-hmm. So you see those coming together in one place for all. So um, it's just going to be a more organized way to access the tools. And as we continually update the platform, uh, we're looking at things like, um, what does it mean to sign containers, for instance, mm-hmm. right, to, to your question. As we add to the, pla- the platform, those will be available to uh, all of our customers as well. It, the flexibility also gives us a better avenue to, to patch. And so if there's a problem, we can swap it out mm-hmm. uh, or even have it you know, simultaneously running uh, in kind of a CI/CD. So one of the things that public cloud affords is they accept uh, things like Docker and, and or have support for Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. And um, these technologies are a little more nimble to fix security problems because um, some of this is a, is a process component too that needs to be factored in. You know, the biggest, uh, most successful companies in the world um, are good because they have a process to handle uh, a security bug or a software bug. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, you talk a lot about the need for organizations, you know, particularly as we move to the you know IoT, where you're going to have you know order of magnitude increase in the number of um, you know, devices out there and, and potentially certificates mm-hmm. of automation as a way to um, lift the burden of that on organizations to to keep their certificate infrastructure right. current. Um, talk about what you mean by automation in that context, and also how DigiCert's uh, you know leveraging automation in its own platform. Yeah, well, first uh, you're you're spot on that. Um uh, short-lived certificates are a trend, uh, and we're seeing that, and it, they are very advantageous. We have some customers that, that don't even try and patch their their software anymore because they just create new versions of it so frequently, and so these certificates may only live for a few weeks, maybe mm-hmm. even a month. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so automation is... So uh, the, the patches are new release, basically. The, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> the patches is a completely new built system. Yeah. It's not, let's go in and make a surgical fix mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. you know, do something and then get, you know, try and do a certificate on there. So the kind of the salient points, I would say, Paul, are um, good APIs that uh, you can integrate against. You know, we're kind of in the, in the age of APIs, you know, well-written, well-documented, uh, restful APIs that, that do what they're supposed to do. We have that flexibility but also embracing the known uh, open standards and protocols that actually work. So Acme is um, now on its version two, uh, something that um, DigiCert supports today with Acme and our Cert Central product. And on the uh, other side, uh, or in the other you know parts of our products in the PKI Manager, we have support for SCEP uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Enrollment Over Secure Transport EST. So you want to look for client um, enrollments. I was visiting with a customer last night, and they said, you know, I'm not really interested in Acme because it doesn't work for my IoT devices. And I'm like, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and, but that's also the reason why we've looked at these these protocols that are open um, that many companies, you know, large companies like Cisco have championed, um, more uh, tailored to the devices. What are some of the challenges there uh, working on IoT, you know, endpoints? Yeah, so you can think of um, IoT devices as um, they run these real-time operating systems, mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of space to put a lot of functionality on there. So doing a full integration with the uh, REST API, for instance, maybe wouldn't be feasible. But um, for some embedded code that is a SCEP or an EST client, for instance, that says, go, you know, give me a client certificate, and then the device hopefully has the capabilities on the chip for uh, secure key storage uh, or even generating a private key, then we've got a winning combination. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that also, you know, to your point, if the device needs to be managed or has somehow um, been attacked, we can refresh that mm -hmm. uh, that certificate on the device. Mm -hmm. Get back to a known good state. Right. Right. One of the changes that's come up um, in the last year, certainly in a sort of, you know, internet ecosystem is uh, some changing ground rules or support amongst the major browser providers for extended validation certs, moving away from some of the um, UI accommodations they've made for EV certs to kind of highlight those as a distinct tier of identity online, um, mm -hmm. you know, whether it was the green padlock or, or the company's name right there in the URL window, there are a number of different approaches to it. And then within the last year, year and a half, we've really seen um, browser makers, particularly Google and Chrome, uh, kind of step back from that and uh, in some ways kind of deprecate the EV cert to, you know, be not too dissimilar from the treatment of, you know, non-EV certs um, mm -hmm. in terms of how they're, how they show up in that browser window. But, uh, mm -hmm. be in where you see this going. Yeah, well, your thoughts are. for sure. This one is super interesting to me. As a technologist, um, I'm, I kind of muse over the fact of how can we get the, the mix of technology right to go solve a problem. I mean, you look at your dashboard on your car. Mm -hmm. You have more than one indicator, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, you look inside a, like a Tesla or something and you've got what looks like a huge oversized iPad in there with all kinds of information. Yeah. And people love this stuff. Yeah. So uh, on one hand... Um, uh, I think we could explain the decision by the browsers because, you know, people can understand indicators and there's, um, you know, UX researchers and scientists that know how to do this the right way. Like what's the right interface to show. But I think it's best explained that browsers are optimizing for speed. They don't want to throw unnecessary things that are going to mess with the experience. Yeah. Uh, on the other side of the house, there's plenty uh, of research and communities and, uh, and people who want the identity component to be part of the decision-making process. Look, if I'm going to do business with you uh, or buy some goods from you, I want to know that they're authentic. 
uh, that they're coming from the right source. And this is where identity plays out. And you're seeing this in spades in the IoT ecosystems. Uh, people want their products to be seen as uh, le- le- legitimate. Mm-hmm. So uh, suffice it to say... Even if they're not. Yeah, even if they're not. <laughs> yeah, good point. So um, the identity absolutely has value. We hear from our customers all the time that they want uh, these identity artifacts. And so what we're starting to see is the conversations being taken elsewhere. Um, we're seeing this particularly in Europe where we have the EIDAS uh, concerns and whether I'm signing a document or authenticating to an airport terminal, you know, the identity is so key to that transaction. So we could um, we could say, you know, why wouldn't it be, you know, web interactions? It, it absolutely is. But I think it'll just play out differently. And the, the other thing that's interesting is uh, when we look at um, things like um, fake news or, you know, sound right. bites, you know, that can be attributed to someone that they didn't really say. Right. Uh, you know, this problem of Deep proving, yeah, yeah, exactly. Improving um, your identity with remote methods is going to be more and more uh, critical. So using some uh, probably, um, I know artificial intelligence, ML is all the rage, but there's starting to be tools where you can tell, am I interacting with a real person? Um, is this their real ID? There's ways to you know, solve the problem of the uh, identity remotely to have a, a virtual uh, notary, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so these kinds of things are, are, are cropping up. Right. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a great point, which is this this issue of identity and authenticity and and brand is, is so much bigger than just websites, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really, these days, speaks to a really pressing kind of social problem, which is how do we understand how do we know the veracity of what we're looking at? How do we know who stands behind something that we're looking at, whether it's a video or an article or something else, right? Yeah. And even if you disagree with the content of the provider, if you can trace it back to, all right, this is an authentic message uh, from yeah. an authentic source, then great. Now now you can, now you can right. know who you're dealing with. That's right. There's a lot of talk here at the DigiSearch Summit, not surprisingly, Security Summit about Internet of Things. Um, and uh, you mentioned some of the, some of the new products and offerings you have around IoT. What role is there for PKI in securing this growing IoT infrastructure? And what would your advice be to the IoT device maker? Could be a large multinational, could be a small, you know, aspiring, you know, IoT device maker about how they might leverage PKI to, you know, secure their deployed products and also some pitfalls to avoid. Of course. Yeah. So you, I I liked your word. I'm going to use it. Um, The veracity of products and goods. That's such a a good way to say it. Um, For makers, we should be thinking right from the initial stages, how do we protect our brand? How do we ensure that uh, a customer gets an authentic ex- experience, uh, you know, with our services and goods? And um, that can be done in the early design phases. So when we're talking IoT, we're talking hardware, which means longer life cycles. And so um, having a sense of the key security uh, use cases. Now, w- when, when PKI works best, it's um, we're not displaying uh, ridiculous dialogues and things like that. It's happening silently in the background and it's enhancing and making the experience better. How many times have you been locked out of a website and you can because you got you don't remember your password or your password manager isn't working or something like that? PKI can handle this more elegantly with uh, you know stronger authentication methods and so forth. I would say as far as the pitfalls are concerned, it's failure to plan. You make sure that security aspects and we could broaden that out to uh, PKI. Um, is included in your roadmap. Because we might not think of PKI necessarily as security when we're thinking of saying, look, this is an authentic brand. This real bottle of wine is 
from the vineyard in France that it says it's from. You know, it doesn't feel like a PK operation, but yet it is because it's this authentic, uh, you know, conversation that, mm-hmm. that you're talking about. So I would say failure to, or, you know, make sure it's planning is part of the process, take an inventory of what you have, and then um, use good tool sets that will tie all these things together. So we can talk about brand protection and encryption of communications and uh, device enrollments all in a, in a conversation that's related because they might be done with product teams uh, that span an organization. And, and that's really the heart of Digicert One is making this more available and digestible across you know, our company. So when you have IoT device makers come to you, let's say they've got a new, you know, we've got the new smart doorbell or we've got the new smart, you know, kitchen appliance. Um, we want to sell millions of these. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we want to put them in every home. And we also want to keep them secure and be able to, you know, manage them over time with software updates and, and feature updates and so on. What do you... What do you tell them? What do you talk to them about? And also, what does DigiSearch kind of uh, offer to them? Yeah, I know. It's a good question. Um, so that we can take that refrigerator as an example. Mm. We hopefully would instruct them to say, uh, you know, what is your, your patching mechanism and what's the operating system of the refrigerator? Um, is that a code signed firmware, for instance? And if it's not, we'd work with them to get that code signed so we would get a tool, have them use uh, you know, our tool for that. More about the maker would be, do they have a process? Process to take over the updates. Uh, you know, if you're in the smart cars today, you know that's that's where an attack would be ripe is to say, I'm going to give you a bad update. That can also sure. be um, authenticated and, and, and looked at as, a, all right, is this a good update or a bad update? So you need um, what we'd offer in terms of advice is what's the security lifecycle that's part of the product lifecycle, and um, and then do you have a good partner to give the tools? to address those um, security lifecycle aspects of your product. The last thing you want is someone messing with your fridge in the middle of the night, you know, cranking out a whole bunch of ice and spilling all over the floor and causing a flood or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> freezing so, your, freezing yeah. your milk for your cereal in the morning. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So we're, we've got already you know, smart kitchen appliances, let's say, you know, whole, whole range of smart devices that are connected, have, you know, interactive features or getting software updates and so on, have internet addresses, but they have lifespans of, of many decades, potentially the, the, the actual physical device itself, the fridge or the dishwasher. Do you think about, or do you talk to customers who are, who are putting forward products like these, how long they plan to support these and what happens when they, in essence, step back from that product, end of life it, say this is not hardware, we're not, we're, we're going to support anymore with software updates and so on, but it's got a, you know, let's say digital certificate on it, it's got an internet address, it's got a useful life that might be another five or 10 or 15 years beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens then? Are we talking enough with manufacturers about end of life <laughs> decisions, right? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. The technology adoption life cycle is so fascinating because um, there are a lot of devices that live longer than they expect. Uh, but my impression, I'll, I'll give you my opinion, is that um, it's hard for companies to sustain um, a device for, say, more than uh, you know 10 years because the technology just changes so rapidly. But yet, we know that this happens and the devices stay out there for a long time. And you look at Heartbleed or you know, Mirai or, or any of these other examples, that hardware can be really, really long-lived. You know, there's two, there's two calls to action is um, when we talk in the crypto world, we usually talk about uh, crypto agility or your ability to yes. inventory what you have and then prepare a plan to update accordingly. Mm-hmm. If you've reached the edge of your 
life cycle with a particular device. Maybe it doesn't even have the capability to, uh, you know, new, use newer encryption algorithms. Then it's time to it's time to decide to retire the device uh, or you know look at the upgrade path and do something about it. Um, and I think this comes back to the discussion earlier on on product planning is when we're putting these things together. How sustainable is the business model based on the long you know the life of the device, and how can it parlay into a security story. Mm -hmm. um, so it either needs to be modular and upgradable or, mm -hmm. you know, end of life and then replaced. Mm -hmm. And so these are the things that I think um, are considerations for, for those, uh, those product decisions. Right. The danger from a security ecosystem standpoint is that something in between happens. So, which I think is, you can actually see happening today, which is, you know, companies decide they're going to stop issuing patches and updates. But of course, people keep using the technology because it continues to work for them and do whatever they bought it to do. Yeah. Um, and you end up with this kind of endemic population of vulnerable devices, you know, unpatched and, and un unsupportable, basically. Yeah. yeah. I love this question, though, Paul, because I look at something like, uh, I don't know, maybe the Cassini probe, you know, that NASA <laughs> launched or something. And how in the yes. world did they do this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's operating, you know, or operated for so long, uh, you know. Uh, bug rovers, first, yeah. right? Marge, you get a you get a, a, a bug um, glitch, and then it's like parked there, you know, for the rest of time, right? <laughs> so at least until Elon and his friends land and clean yeah. the place up. Yeah, all the space trash. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, well, NASA thinks in those, you know, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 year terms when they're obviously when they're designing these probes. Right. Um, yeah. But most most other most companies, most terrestrial firms do not. Yeah. The threat of attack out in space is probably it's likely low. low. Yes. Uh, so then it's like, where is it being controlled from inside NASA? Also yes. probably likely low yes. uh, that uh, hackers are going to do something. So yes. kind of a special case there. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, this has been great. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to say? No, Paul, I think, um, you know, as always, it's great talking with you and uh, appreciate what you're doing for the security community to highlight Thanks. things, uh, particularly with PKI and, and, uh, and everything else. So thanks well, for your work. Thank you. And thank you for having me back to Security Summit. Of course. Great. Dan Tinson is the Chief Technology Officer at the firm Digicert. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast was sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI authentication and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com.